Hi, I'm Glenn, your host. Thank you for tuning in to episode three of the Chemistry Online Podcast for MSMU, C-H-E-1-A. I hope you're having a good time in your car, on your commute, around now. This week, don't forget to take Quiz 1. There's a link to Quiz 1 in Module 2. You must take this quiz by July 9th, which is Sunday, but you must schedule the exam proctoring for this quiz 24 hours in advance, so that'll be by July 8th, at the latest anyways. There is a link to the Examity Proctoring Service inside Quiz 1, which is inside Module 2 on the Canvas. Before you take Quiz 1, please be sure that you watch the practice calculations video from the last week's module, the module called Getting Started. There is a list of uh, practice calculation problems in that, uh, that, that, that Canvas link. And uh, you need to, I mean, this is just your best way to prepare for the quiz. Um, besides listening to the audio podcast, I mean, you've already done the work on WebAssign, so that prepares you also. Now, quiz, uh, I'm sorry, uh, module two is about atoms, molecules, and ions. Your first due date in module two is Wednesday, July 5th, on which day your first WebAssign work for the week is due. The WebAssign work... Um, called Atomic Theory and Formulas. Also due on July 5th is your answer to the question, please comment on the following statement. That is the question. The statement is on Canvas. It's something like, today it is easy for us to change one element into another element just by changing the number of protons. I want you to think about that statement and comment on to what extent is that true, or if it is false, why is it false? And then I want you to give a couple of examples. More than one example would be great, but at least one example is expected. Um, of course, you're going to have to know a few things before you can comment on that, and you'll find those things in Chapter 2. Atoms, Molecules, and Ions. The first interesting concept in Chapter 2 is the concept of the atom. There were some Greek guys a long time ago who came up with this idea that if you chop up any piece of matter, so for example, you have, let's say, an asparagus, and you chop it up into small bits, and you chop it up into smaller bits, and you take one of those bits and chop it in half. You take one of those new little halves, you chop that in half. You take one of those new little halves, you chop that in half. So you keep on doing that until you get to a piece that you cannot chop anymore. And those Greek guys said, well, that piece must be an atom, the smallest bit of matter possible. I'm not saying that they actually got a asparagus and chopped it up into atoms. That's impossible with the tools that they had available. But I'm just saying that that's the concept of the atom. Now, the slightly more modern guy, this is John Dalton, who came up with atomic theory and a few laws associated with atoms, was a school teacher. This guy, John Dalton, 19th century, school teacher. I don't know what age he taught, but when um, when I read online, not in the textbook, but this is elsewhere, when I read that John Dalton was a school teacher, to me that means he taught kids. It's like It's like your fifth grade teacher or something came up with atomic theory and it's like the atomic theory is in textbooks all over the world. I mean, that never happens these days, right? 
these days scientific discoveries or um, very important observations are published and made by professional scientists or university professors, not by school teachers. Oh, for the days of, uh, of, of early science. Now, uh, some interesting parts of the, uh, John Dalton's work are the law of definite proportions and the law of multiple proportions. Let me just uh, make a few comments about these two laws. First, the law of definite proportions, also known as constant composition. Suppose you buy laptops from Amazon, and the laptop weighs five pounds. One and a half pounds of that is the battery. So the other three and a half pounds is the rest of the laptop. The ratio is always going to be like that. It doesn't matter if you order one of those laptops or a truckload of those laptops. It's always going to be for every 3.5 pounds of laptop, you're, you're going to get 1.5 pounds of battery. Or uh, for every 5 pounds of total laptop unit, 1.5 pounds of that is going to be battery. It's true for any amount of, of that model of laptop that you buy from Amazon. That is just like the law of definite proportions. If you have some ice cream salt, uh, calcium chloride, it doesn't matter if you have one crystal of that or if you have a whole carton full of ice cream salt because you're going to make a whole lot of ice cream. It doesn't matter. The ratio of calcium to chloride is always going to be the same by mass. I mean by weight. It's always going to be the same. If it wasn't the same, then it wouldn't be ice cream salt. And if your ratio of uh, the rest of the laptop to the battery in weight, if it wasn't 3.5 pounds to 1.5 pounds, well, that wouldn't be the same model of laptop. It would be something else. It might be a different model of laptop, but it wouldn't be the same laptop. That is the law of definite proportions. To us today, that's just common sense, but in the 19th century, when the atom was still a matter of just conjecture, I mean... You cannot see an atom. Today, we have sophisticated tools whereby we can image individual atoms in any sample. But in the 19th century, the atom was only something that chemists could imagine by weighing all the materials, all, all the, um, the, the different chemicals that made up a certain compound. By weighing those in different amounts of that compound, they found that uh, they can't see the atom, and they can't count like the particles in the compound. They can't. They cannot count the atoms. But the, by just by using the weights, they found that you have the same ratio of weights in any amount of a pure substance. Notice that the words "pure substance" are used in the textbook when the, uh, the textbook explains this law. That's important because. If you have some mixture, for example, seasoned salt. Here, have you ever seen seasoned salt before? If you look at seasoned salt, there are little red specks and white specks and maybe a few black specks. So that's a mixture. You can't be guaranteed that every teaspoon of seasoned salt is going to have the same number, uh, the, the same weight of red specks to the same weight of white specks, you know, that's not guaranteed. But in a pure substance, which is all a single chemical compound, then it is guaranteed. For every chemical compound, 
if, for example, it is calcium chloride again. It doesn't matter where you found that calcium chloride or how much you have. You're always going to have the same ratio of calcium weight to chloride weight. If you had a different ratio, it would be a different compound. It wouldn't be ice cream salt. It wouldn't be calcium chloride in the same way that if you had a different weight of ratio of a laptop weight to battery weight, it wouldn't be the same laptop. It would be some other model. That's the law of definite proportions. Now, the law of multiple proportions takes this one step closer to the concept of the atom because the law of multiple proportions brings in whole numbers. When you have some piece of matter that is made of atoms, it is made of a whole number of atoms. You cannot have half of an atom. You cannot have a third of an atom. And it's here in the law of multiple proportions where this is first noticed in a systematic and, and announceable kind of way. I need to cough, excuse me. Now, the law of multiple proportions gets us one step closer to the atom concept because the law of multiple proportions brings in whole numbers. Whole numbers. Once you identify that whole numbers are always at work in any chemical reaction that you do, you are closer to the concept of the atom because atoms behave in whole numbers. I mean, you can't have half of an atom in a substance. In my salt, my the table salt, the sodium chloride, you can never have half of a sodium atom and a chloride, a chloride ion. You, you, you can't have half of that. Um, you, in, in, in water, H2O, you can't have half of an oxygen atom with those hydrogen atoms. Or you can't have three and a half hydrogen atoms. You can never have a third of an atom or any fraction of it. You have to have a whole number. And that's the discovery of the law of multiple proportions. Uh, it works like this. Suppose in the universe of fashion, there were only one kind of button and it weighed half an ounce. If you make a whole bunch of garments with buttons on them, if you take any one of those garments and you weigh just the buttons, you're going to end up with a whole number multiple of that half ounce button weight. You could get a jacket right off the line and you weigh the buttons on that jacket. You're going to get something like four ounces. That means eight buttons, right? You could get something like five ounces. That would mean 10 buttons. What you're not going to get is three and a quarter ounces or five and a quarter ounces. You can't get that. The law of multiple proportions is just a fact of nature. In this case, you're never going to get any fractional amount of buttons that is not a whole number multiple of that half ounce. You could get five and a half ounces. Did I already say that? You could get eight and a half ounces, but you're never going to get eight and a third ounces. That's the law of multiple proportions, okay? When this law was noticed, I mean, when this, this law is just an observation of the behavior of nature, you know? Uh, when chemists were doing a bunch of chemical reactions, they just, if it, those who were careful enough and those who were paying attention noticed that you can only get whole number multiples of, of, of certain weights of certain substances. So let me get to, into a chemical example here. Suppose I have pure hydrogen and pure oxygen, and I react those, and I get two things, water and hydrogen peroxide. 
let's say. Hydrogen peroxide is that first aid liquid that we used to use to clean wounds. But uh, the ratio of the masses of oxygen to water, I mean oxygen to hydrogen in the water, you know, water is H2O, the ratio of the masses, let's say it's four pounds of oxygen to one pound of hydrogen. That's water. According to the law of definite proportions, that's always going to be water. If any water you find, it's going to be four pounds of oxygen to one pound of hydrogen. Now let's look at the other thing, the hydrogen peroxide. That is not four pounds of oxygen to one pound of, uh, one pound of hydrogen, because this is not water. This is hydrogen peroxide. It's something different. When we weigh the oxygen and the hydrogen in hydrogen peroxide, we get eight pounds of oxygen to every one pound of hydrogen. So the water was four pounds to one pound. The hydrogen peroxide was eight pounds to one pound. Notice those numbers. Eight is four times two. Two is the whole number multiple that we notice in hydrogen peroxide compared to water. So the water was four pounds of oxygen to one pound of hydrogen. The hydrogen peroxide was eight pounds of oxygen to one pound of hydrogen. The law of multiple proportions is saying that this is always going to be some whole number multiple of four. Uh, the ratio of oxygen to hydrogen by, by weight or by mass is always going to be some multiple of four. I mean, we could have 12 pounds of oxygen to one pound of hydrogen. We could have, um, we could have 16 pounds of oxygen to one pound of hydrogen. We are never going to have some multiple that is not a whole number, like, like 1.5 times four. What's 1.5 times 4? That's 6. So we're never going to have 6 pounds of oxygen to 1 pound of hydrogen. You can't make that chemical compound. It's never going to happen. That's what the law of multiple proportion says. Those, those um, ratios of masses for each chemical that you make is always going to be a whole number multiple of the simplest chemical. This is explained in the textbook with... Copper chloride. Suppose you have pure copper, you have pure chlorine, you react them together, and you get some green stuff, and you get some brown stuff. The textbook it describes the, so that the weights of the copper and the chlorine in the green stuff, and the weights of the copper and the chlorine in the brown stuff. If you take the ratio of those weights, the chlorine to the copper, and the green stuff, it's exactly double the ratio of uh, chlorine to copper in the brown stuff. What about inside the atom? The early ideas were that the atom is the smallest piece of matter and can't be divided, so there isn't anything inside. But now we know that there are things inside, and we can understand what's inside the atom. The first guy to do this, or to for the first guy to get a piece of the inside of the atom was J.J. Thompson. And here's how he did it. There's a picture of this in your textbook, which is important. He took a glass tube that he shaped by himself using heat, and he put inside that glass tube a piece of metal, two pieces of metal, in fact. And one of those pieces of metal, uh, he hooked up to a very high-voltage negative charge. He's using electricity here. So just like on a 9-volt battery, there's a minus side and there's a positive side 
uh, he's got a the minus side the, the minus side of his electrical circuit on one piece of metal in the glass tube and he's got the positive side of his electrical circuit connected to another piece of metal in his glass tube and he took all the air out of that tube and the reason for taking the air out is because this guy was interested in metal atoms he wanted to investigate uh, the question of can I or can I not take apart a metal atom in this machine so he took out all the air because air is made of atoms presumably and he didn't want any of that interfering with the experiment so when he turned on the electrical circuit to activate the negative charge on the piece of metal and the positive charge on the other piece of metal he found an interesting thing a beam of light would would be would appear between the negative and the positive pieces of metal so he made another glass tube he drilled a hole into the positive piece of metal and turned it on again and he found that beam of light appeared between the negative and the positive pieces of metal and and passed right through that hole and just kept on going throughout the rest of the length of the tube so looking at that J.J. Um, Thompson concluded that, hey, this beam of light, which is coming from the negatively charged piece of metal, it must be made of pieces of metal atoms. When, when he turned off his experiment and looked in the glass, there, were no, there was no evidence of that beam of light at all. I mean, that, that there was no um, pieces of metal lying around where the beam of light ended up hitting the surface of the glass. There were no uh, stains where the beam of light hit the surface of the glass. So there are no atoms in that beam of light. He concluded that it's got to be the case that I took off pieces of the metal atoms from the negative, the negatively charged piece of metal and they were flying towards a positively charged piece of metal. When I drilled a hole in that and then did the experiment again, those, pe those pieces of metal atoms were flying so fast that, uh, that they're, they're flying so fast from the negative side to the positive side that they flew right through the hole. And they just kept on going. So because they flew away from the negative side and towards the positive side, Thompson decided that these pieces of the atom must be negatively charged it was already known it was already known at that time that uh, negative that there are two charges in nature there's negative charge and a positive charge negatively charged things repel other negatively charged things and positive charges are attracted to uh, negative charges positive charges attract negative charges this was uh, known in Europe starting with Benjamin Franklin. I think the plus and minus designation originated with this guy, Benjamin Franklin. And um, it was a great set of party tricks uh, for rich people who had lots of free time in Europe to uh, charge up objects just in the same way that you would uh, charge up your body by shuffling your feet across a carpet on a on a dry day. And then you shock someone. Yeah, it, it was... a uh, it was popular to do experiments like that with different objects, different materials like rabbit's fur, a glass rod, stuff like that. And um, with that knowledge, Thompson decided that uh, he just discovered a negatively charged piece of metal atoms. 
and he didn't stop there. He changed the metal out. He put different metals in there, gold, silver, copper, iron. It doesn't matter what metal he put in there. He always got the same beam. So he decided that since I could use different metals in here and I always get the same result, it must be the case that I have just found something that is common to every atom. It doesn't matter what atom it is. This negatively charged thing, this negatively charged thing that makes a beam, it must be in every atom. So we now call this negatively charged thing the electron. And we call it the electron because there's some Greek word that starts with electro or something, and it means amber. You know the color, like yellowish brown, amber? The reason why this is now used for electron is because, you know those party tricks I mentioned for the rich people in Europe? One of those party tricks was to rub a piece of amber with some rabbit's fur, and the amber, for some reason, um, was really good at holding charge, holding the type of charge that would shock somebody or the type of charge that would attract or repel a bunch of little bits of paper, you know? So uh, that's why they called it the electron. Now, um, he also, just to, just to be sure of his discovery, he also found that if he... If he put two electric plates, they don't have to be inside the glass the way it is shown in your book, but they could even be outside of the glass. If he put two electric, uh, two, two metal plates and he put a positive charge on one plate and a negative charge on the other plate, he could cause the beam that he noticed to bend. Of course, it would always bend towards the positively charged plate and away from the negatively charged plate. And that's not even all. He also tried this with magnets because there was another guy in Europe working on electricity, working on electricity and magnetism at the time. His name was Michael Faraday. You may have heard of him, yeah? This guy discovered that mag magnets are very much related to electrical things. So when Thompson put a magnet next to his beam of electrons, he found that he could move that beam of electrons just by moving a magnet. And this is totally outside of that glass tube. He would just bring a magnet close to the glass tube and the beam would move more. He would move that magnet away from the glass tube and the beam would, turn, would revert back to its original path. So um, all of these experiments showed that there's some stuff in there that uh, it, there's some stuff in that beam. That beam is made of some stuff, some particles that respond to positive charges, respond to negative charges, they respond to a magnetic field in the same way that electricity does. So uh, this is how we discovered that uh, electrons are pieces of atoms. You know, um, you can try this on just light. If you have a laser pointer or a flashlight, you can try bringing a very strong magnet towards that beam of light, and you'll find that the light does not move. So that light, so J.G. Thompson, all, all he actually saw with his eyes was the beam of light, or the dot that their beam of light would make at the other end of the tube. He concluded that these, that this beam was made of particles by noticing the behavior of that beam of light. You know, you wouldn't see the beam of light unless you had a metal on the, um, on the, on the negative charge and a metal on the positive charge where the metal on the positive charge had a hole in it. 
and then you wouldn't and you would be able to control that beam of light using other charges and or, or with a magnet just ordinary light wouldn't do that so this is how he knew that that beam of light that he saw was actually made of particles made of pieces of of matter that had a charge a negative charge so after jg thompson's experiment um people thought that atoms were made of negative charges, but they knew that they weren't made of just negative charges. They had to be made of positive charges also. If not, then all those party tricks that the rich people would do wouldn't work. There has to be a positive charge and a negative charge. So they assumed that the atom was made of a bunch of positively charged material, perhaps in a jelly-like form, and then it would have a bunch of hard pieces of negatively charged material, which could be ripped out, just as in J.G. Thompson's experiment, to form a beam. So, is this idea correct? There's a scientist, Ernest Rutherford, who had some students set up a an experiment to test this idea. Now, the experiment used some radioactive material. Um, by, the, by that time, uh, by the early 1900s, it was known that uh, there are some minerals in nature that emit radiation. And it was uh, this was discovered by Marie and Pierre Curie, mostly Marie Curie. Uh, and it was known that the, the, this radiation was made of particles. So certain minerals just emit high-energy particles flying off in all directions. So the, the, the students of Rutherford got a lead box, and they put a radioactive mineral in there. And they put a hole in that lead box, and then they closed the lead box so that only the hole, the hole is the only opening. That means that the radiation, the radioactive particles from the mineral inside would come out of only that hole. That would make a tight beam of radioactive particles. So now they have this box that, sh that, that, that shines out a tight beam of radioactive particles. They point that box at a piece of gold. And they take that gold and they pound it into a foil that is so thin, you could almost see through it. The idea there was to get that foil to be only a few atoms thick. So they set up that very, very thin foil and they shine the radioactive particles onto that foil. And then they're expecting to find that the radioactive particles can go right through the foil. The foil is not going to look damaged at all because the idea here is that if the atom is really made of some soft jelly-like material that is positively charged and it just has a, a few negatively charged bits in it, then radioactive particles should rip right through. Uh, now, this is all happening at a very sub-microscopic level, so when particles rip right through no damage needs to be done to the gold foil itself, you know, and no visible damage. You know, they would just go through. I mean, the, the particles would just go through. So that's what they were expecting. In order to detect the radiation, they used a sheet that has been, that, that had been coated with the material that gives off light when radioactive particles hit it at high speed. So the high energy particles coming from the radioactive source in the lead box with a hole in it should create a bright dot on this sheet of um, radiation detector material. This is just called phosphor, so the sheet of phosphor. So they, they have this phosphor-coated sheet, 
behind the gold foil. The gold foil is, is um, getting a beam of radioactive particles pointed at it, and they expect to find dots, bright dots, in behind the gold foil. But they don't stop there. For some reason, these guys decide to extend the sheet not just behind the foil, but all around the foil too. On the sides, some in front of the foil, leaving just enough room for the beam of radioactive particles to get uh, to, to, to hit the foil without hitting the uh, w without having to go through the sheet of phosphor first. So if you look in your textbook the, the, the there's a diagram of this and the the sheet of phosphor it is uh, in a horseshoe horseshoe shape so that the beam of particles can, um, go through the opening of the horseshoe, hit the gold foil, and then um, anything that goes through would be, be would be detected, but also anything that bounces off would be detected. Nobody expected anything to bounce off of that gold foil because the understanding of the day was that atoms would be mostly the soft material, the soft positively charged material. So... When Rutherford saw the results, uh, he was very surprised. Of course, he had to ask his students to do this experiment over and over again, just in case they made some silly mistake with the setup. But he found, they all found that not only did radioactive particles go through the gold foil and hit the phosphor in behind it, but the, those particles also got deflected by the gold foil, so some particles reflected off and hit the, the phosphorus sheet in front of the gold foil. That was unexpected. There was some bending of the particles path so that the, uh, some particles hit areas around the back of the gold foil. I mean, not just directly behind, but also to the side behind the gold foil. But, you know, that was, that was not quite expected, but it wasn't quite uh, a huge surprise because the 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 atoms of the gold foil were known were thought to be made of positively charged jelly-like material and the beam of particles was known to be positively charged itself so there would be some repulsion there causing some bending of the path of the beam but the huge surprise was the was the was the reflection that happened to to make um, bright dots in front of the gold foil on that phosphor sheet. Huh. It was so surprising that Rutherford wrote a letter to somebody saying it, it was just like firing a cannonball at a piece of tissue paper and then watching that cannonball reflect off and then hit you again. It was that surprising. So this was a huge breakthrough. From this experiment, Rutherford and his students concluded that the idea of the atom was totally wrong. It is not positively charged jelly-like material mixed in with a bunch of very tiny negatively charged pieces. That's not it at all. It's got to be that positively charged material is concentrated and it's very hard. If you hit it, you're going to bounce off. It must be that. And then there's those, those, those same negatively charged bits of electrons. So... They also concluded that the atom must be mostly empty. Okay, now, how did they come up with that idea? That's because 
most of the beam of electron, most of the beam of radioactive particles passed through the gold foil as expected. That's what happened to most of them. Only a few, a very small minority uh, of, of the bright dots on the sheet of phosphor were in front of the gold foil. So most of the particles had no trouble passing through that gold foil. So they decided you can't have it both ways. You can't have both, you know, a jelly-like atom and an atom with a hard positive, um, uh, hard positive region that stuff bounces off of. You can't have it both ways. It must be the case that that hard positive stuff is concentrated in one spot. And the rest of the atom, it just must be empty. The reason why you can't have it both ways is because there would be too much positive material. If you have, if the whole atom is positive and jelly-like, and the atom contains this positively charged hard piece, well, there would be, th- th- there wouldn't be um, enough electrons to counter that positive charge. You will understand about the necessity of electrons countering the positive charge of the positively charged part of the atom um, a little later in this chapter. So, in a moment. That was a huge breakthrough for Rutherford and his gang. Now, also in the textbook, there is a picture of the Millikan oil drop apparatus. This was done in also the early 20th century, 1909. And and it was done because this guy, Robert Millikan, wanted to figure out just how much charge an electron has. Now, it's impossible to pick out an individual electron to measure its charge, at least back in 1909. So the way Millikan did his experiment was very clever. He got a container, and he removed all the air from it, uh, just like J.G. Thompson, except uh, Millikan's container was not glass. He put a little glass window in the container, though, and he put a magnifying on that glass so he could see in that container... um, things magnified and what he was looking for was oil drops so he put a um a uh, a spritzer do you know the old style of perfume bottles that you see in cartoons where there's a bulb and you squeeze the bulb and it creates a spritz of whatever liquid is in the container yes he used that he put some oil in there and he uh, spritzed some oil into his vacuum chamber and he through the window he watched each individual oil droplet the tiny tiny oil droplets he watched them fall to the bottom of the container now every time he spritzed uh, because the oil droplets had to move past each other and through the spritzer there was friction there, just like the friction between your shoe and the carpet when you shuffle along to to shock somebody. So some of those oil droplets came out with charges. Um, some of them came out with positive charges and some with negative charges. But uh, as he watched the droplets fall, he could increase or decrease the voltage on the plates, the, the negative charge plate at the bottom and the positive charged plate at the top inside his uh, his vacuum chamber. So as he increased the voltage, he found that he could make some of those droplets hang in midair because if they're positively charged, I'm sorry, if they're negatively charged, they could be repelled from the negatively charged plate at the bottom and attracted to the positively charged plate at the top. And if he adjusted the voltage or the energy of those 
charged plates just right, he could just counteract, he, he could have just enough force in there to counteract the force of gravity on a droplet. Of course, some droplets would just fall faster and some droplets would just travel upward and crash into the top plate while this is happening. But if he just focused on one droplet, he could measure how much voltage he needed to cause that droplet to float in midair. And he did that. And he wrote down how much um, energy, how much voltage was necessary to do that. And then he did it again with another droplet. And he would just sit there and just take this information. He would just make droplet after droplet float in midair and then write down how much voltage that took, how much electrical energy that took. And another droplet, write down how much energy that took. Another droplet, write down how much energy that took. He took a whole bunch of uh, data like that, a whole bunch of numbers. And using all that data, he was able to calculate what is the charge to mass ratio of each electron. Um, in other words, this guy was able to figure out how much charge an electron has compared to how heavy an electron is. Uh, th th this was a, a huge discovery. This proved um, beyond any doubt that J.G. Thompson was right. Um, the, atom, uh, the, the electrons are individual particles. And the reason why this proves that is because it's only if you have individual particles you can, that, that you could find a charge for each particle. Millikan here didn't find that every droplet had the same charge. No. Um, as the droplets got charged by the movement through the, um, the perfume dispenser, they wouldn't have the same charge. They would have random number, uh, random amounts of charge, but they would have the same multiple of a, 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 a of, of charges. So, for example, one droplet would be twice as charged as the as another droplet, or three times, or four times. It would never be the case that there would be a droplet that was two and a half times as charged as as the previous droplet. Do you know what I mean? This is another use of whole numbers in some chemical discovery. Because there were always a whole number of a certain charge, uh, Millikan was able to figure out that, hey, these things, these things have a minimum charge, and each particle, each oil drop that I have here has a whole number of these charges. So... Um, this was done using a charge to mass ratio, but uh, that is not important. What is important is that this guy used this machine to figure out that there are that there is a certain charge that each electron has, and you can't have a fractional multiple of this. You, you can only have whole numbers of electrons. You can't have one and a half electrons or, or anything like that. So that that was a very cool experiment that he did. Um, but uh, that's it for the discovery of the atom uh, part of chapter 2. Now, after that, in chapter 2, there is some, there are some lessons on notation. Um, we know today that the atom is made of protons, electrons, and neutrons. Uh, electrons, you've already heard about here. Protons are the things that Rutherford discovered those positively charged things. Rutherford decided that they should be in the center of the atom, 
and uh, we call that center the nucleus. So the nucleus contains the protons. We know today by someone else's experiment, which is not in the book, that the protons are not by themselves in the nucleus. They are with neutrons. They are together with neutrons there. So protons and neutrons. Neutrons have no charge, and protons have a charge of 1 plus. Electrons have a charge of 1 minus. Um, we, 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 we didn't go and measure. The Millikan's oil drop experiment didn't measure each electron to have a charge of 1 minus. That is not the case. But we just define the charge of the electron as 1 minus for our convenience. In fact, Millikan's experiment um, found that the charge of the electron is some very small number in units of coulombs. They were using units of coulombs at the time, in 1909, to measure electrical charge. And so um, that's what Millikan used to measure the charge of his, of his uh, little oil droplets. But we call the electron as a particle with a 1 minus charge, just for convenience. You know, the actual charge is negative 1.602 times 10 to the minus 19th coulombs, but nobody wants to deal with that number. So we just say 1 minus, and the proton, we just say 1 plus. So that's how we talk about the parts of an atom, the subatomic particles, particles that make up an atom. Um, the electron has almost no mass, it's important to know that, and the proton and a neutron each have a mass of one atomic mass unit. That's another convenience term. Uh, the atomic mass unit uh, is not something that you and I would use on a daily basis. We would rather use grams, pounds, or kilograms, or ounces. But uh, the atomic mass units is just a convenient item to use when we discuss or measure individual atoms and molecules because every neutron we just consider one atomic mass unit. Every proton we also consider one atomic mass unit. Now, there is this, there's something special about the protons of an atom, and that is that the protons of the atom define what the atom is. If you have sodium, for example, it has 11 protons. Any atom with 11 protons is automatically sodium. It is, this is not like people, where you are not, let's say, your height. Let's say you're six feet tall. That does not define you. There is another person next to you who is also six feet tall. You are not the same person. See, it's not like that for atoms. With atoms, the number of protons defines the atom. It defines all the things that the atom can do. You and I breathe oxygen. Oxygen is an atom. Well, oxygen is a molecule made of two atoms, but each oxygen atom has eight protons. That's why we could breathe it. If it had seven protons, it wouldn't do us any good. If we just had atoms in the air with seven protons each, we would be dead because there wouldn't be any oxygen. So the number of protons defines the atom. If I put another proton in, um, in the oxygen atom, it becomes fluorine, poisonous gas. Hmm. So the number of protons is the most important thing, and we call that the atomic number. The atomic number, which is abbreviated as Z. I know what you're thinking. Where the heck is the letter Z in the words atomic number? I don't see it either. I believe this may come from German, because German Germany was a center of scientific learning in the 20th century.
but I'm not sure of that. We just call the atomic number with the letter Z. There is also another number that is special known as the mass number. We call this with the letter A. Is that confusing? Of course it is. Sorry about that. I didn't just make it up. So the mass number is the total number of particles in the nucleus, which is the number of protons plus the number of neutrons. That's the mass number. The mass number is important. Um, if you end up working in a hospital, the hospital will often have a radiology or a, a radio pharmaceutical department or wing. If the hospital is large enough, then they will have their own atom smashing device in their radio pharmaceutical laboratory or wing. This is the device is called a cyclotron and it produces different elements with different mass numbers. For example, the element iodine. Uh, iodine on the periodic table, let me bring up the periodic table. If you go to ptable.com when you are not driving, you can find a nice periodic table very easily. Iodine has the atomic number Z equal to uh, 53. There are 53 protons. It usually has a mass number of 127. There are a total of 127 neutrons and protons. However, in the hospital's radiopharmaceutical lab, the cyclotron makes iodine-131. 131 is the mass number for the iodine that they make there. Why do they make iodine-131? It's because iodine-131 is radioactive. Why do they want something radioactive in the hospital? It's because they use iodine-131 and its radiation to kill cancer. There is a certain organ in the human body that collects iodine, and there's only one organ like that. It is the thyroid gland. And if you have cancer in there, well, the doctor can put in some iodine-131 in your body, anywhere in your body. It will eventually get collected by the thyroid gland. And if that iodine-131 happens to be radio, um, if the iodine happens to be radioactive, such as iodine-131, then that radiation will be um, emitted only in the thyroid gland because that's the only organ that collects iodine. And then the cancer can be killed there instead of killing your whole body. So that's why there is a cyclotron or an atom smasher in the hospital. It's not just for iodine-131. The cyclotron is there to make other um, radioactive forms of atoms with high mass numbers. Okay, these atoms with different mass numbers, these are called isotopes. This is an important word. An isotope is an atom that has some alternative number of neutrons. Remember that the atom's identity is defined by its number of protons. So if you add neutrons, that doesn't change the atom. Iodine still behaves the way iodine does, whether it's iodine-127 or iodine-131. Chemically, it's the same. It does the same chemical reactions. If I breathe oxygen that has oxygen 16, the mass number 16, then I will be alive. Oxygen 18, I will still be alive. Oxygen 17, still alive. No health problems at all. In fact, my body cannot tell the difference. The only difference is the number of neutrons. So some isotopes are radioactive. Those radioactive isotopes are the ones that the hospital is making in the cyclotron. I know what you're thinking. 
why does the hospital have to have a cyclotron? Can't we just buy this from some drug company? No, you can't. And the reason is a lot of these useful radioactive isotopes have a very short shelf life. For example, the iodine-131, I think the shelf life is like less than a month. There are certain very useful um, isotopes for medical um, imaging and for cancer treatment that have a half-life of like a week or, or even less. Now, those, th those things with short half-lives are very, very useful. And the reason why they're useful is because if the half-life is short, then the radioactive material is not going to be radioactive for a long time. Oh, I just said the word half-life, but I didn't tell you what it means. Half-life is a term to describe the shelf life of the material. After one, uh, so the half-life is measured in um, time, uh, hours, days, months, years. So if the half-life is, let's say, five hours, then for any sample of that material that you have, five hours later, half of that sample is going to be gone. It's going to turn into something else. Now, the reason why these short shelf life materials are useful in the hospital is because if the half-life is short, I mean the shelf life, if it's short, then when you take that material in your body and it does its radioactive thing, well, it's not going to be radioactive for long. So even if that material doesn't get excreted by your body through urine or feces or whatever, even if you fail to excrete the material, it's, it's perfectly safe. It's going to turn into something else. So going back to the iodine-131 for thyroid cancer treatments, the iodine-131 turns into xenon. The reason why is the, the isotope, iodine-131, is unstable. Um, the nucleus of such an atom with so many neutrons that the mass number is now 131 instead of 127, the nucleus falls apart by itself. And when it falls apart, the number of protons changes. So for iodine-131, the change that happens is the number of protons gets increased and the number of neutrons gets decreased. There are just too many neutrons, and so that's why this change happens. So when that happens, uh, iodine, which had um, 53 protons, suddenly changes into something with 54 protons. And what has 54 protons? If you go to ptable.com, there is a periodic table there. More on the periodic table in a moment. But on the periodic table, uh, the, the, number, the element number 54 is xenon. And xenon is a gas. It is a inert gas, meaning it does not do anything chemically. It does not react with anything in your body does not react with anything outside of your body. So when the iodine-131 turns into xenon, xenon is just a gas, that, 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 that's perfectly safe. It's, it's okay to have a few atoms of xenon in your thyroid gland. Eventually, they're going to make their way out of your body through possibly your skin, possibly your lungs, or possibly some other route. It, 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 they can just pass through however they want. They're not going to do any chemical reaction with anything in your body. So this is why the hospital makes different isotopes. There is a really interesting isotope that the hospital makes, uh, even more interesting than iodine-131, and that's... Uh, this this radioactive form of fluorine, this isotope of fluorine. 
um, I hope that I'll have a chance to tell you about this. They used it for PET scans to make fluorodeoxyglucose, but uh, we don't have time for that right now. Maybe some, some other day. So um, isotopes, these, these are important to understand. There is a, a big table in your textbook of a whole bunch of isotopes and the numbers of protons they have, the numbers of neutrons they have, and their um, atomic masses. Now, uh, the, some notation is important here. When you uh, write down an atom, uh, the shorthand for writing an atom um, on paper would be to just write the atomic symbol. The atomic symbol is found on the periodic table. If you go to ptable.com, you will see a, um, a colorful design full of squares. Each square contains a number. That number is the atomic number. Each square also contains a letter or two. That group of one or two letters is the atomic symbol. The atomic symbol is always one capital letter, and it might have a lowercase letter by it. It can never have more than one capital letter. And the reason is all the, all the chemists got together and decided that if you write a capital letter, then you are writing a kind of atom. If you write more than one capital letter, then you are writing more than one kind of atom. That is just so that we could all write notes, quick chemistry notes, and none of us will be confused. We'll all know what the other person means. Now, each kind of atom that you see on the periodic table uh, at ptable.com is called an element. That's what an element is. It is a type of atom. And remember, every type of atom is defined by how many protons it has, is the atomic number. Okay, now when you write an atomic symbol on a piece of paper or in your imagination, let's say you are writing the atomic symbol for hydrogen, which is just a capital H. You write that in your imagination, and to the lower left of the letter H, if you write a 1 there, that 1 refers to the atomic number for H. It is the uh, number of protons. If you write a 1 above that 1 to the upper left corner of your letter H, that 1 refers to the mass number. It's the number of neutrons plus the number of protons for that atom. Okay, now instead of that 1 for the mass number, if you put a 2 there, you're, you have just written the symbol for uh, another isotope of hydrogen. Hydrogen with an extra neutron there. One proton and one neutron. That's a, that, that's a heavier form of hydrogen. Chemically, it is identical to hydrogen. It is just a little bit heavier. Suppose you put a 3 there. That's another isotope of hydrogen. So a 3 instead of a 2 in the upper left corner of the H. That is a radioactive form of hydrogen. Chemically, it is the same as hydrogen, but it will, it will change um, into some other element, uh, just g given some time. All right, so th the place where you put the mass number is the upper left corner. The place where you put the atomic number is the lower left corner. What about the right corner? The upper right corner, that's the place where you would put a charge. So all atoms, you know, have protons, which are positively charged, and electrons, which are negatively charged. So if you take an atom and it has more protons than electrons, 
then that atom is going to be positively charged. So to describe that charge, we count. How many protons does it have more than how many electrons? So for example, if you have a hydrogen atom, it has one proton, it has zero electrons, then its positive charge is one plus. It has one more proton than electrons. Let's say you have a, a, an, an oxygen atom. It has eight protons, but it has 10 electrons. Well, that particular oxygen atom has a two minus charge because it has two fewer protons than electrons. Okay. How about a chlorine atom? Let's say your chlorine atom has uh, seven protons because all chlorine atoms have um, seven. Oh, I'm sorry. 17. Let's say, let's say your chlorine atom has 17 protons because all chlorine atoms have 17 protons. But let's say it has 18 electrons. It has one fewer proton than electrons. So its charge is one minus. And you would write that in the upper right corner next to the chemical symbol for chlorine. So that's the charge and the mass number, the atomic number, chemical symbol, and how to write them in a symbol. I am going to take a break here. This is kind of tiring. So the next episode, episode four, will continue on chapter two. Thank you.